Support for this podcast comes from Bryn Mawr Communications. BMC produces a number of informative podcast series spanning a variety of topics in optometry. Discover a new show at itube.net slash podcasts. Hello and Happy New Year. Welcome to all you new and returning listeners of the ModPod. For this January episode, we grabbed two final articles from the November-December issue of Modern Optometry that we thought were worth sharing in this format. So if you haven't had a chance to read one or both of them, then you're in luck. And if you have already read them, don't go away just yet. Repetition is a great way to help you remember information, and this way you get to hear the authors read their articles to you directly. You can't beat that now, can you? Both of this episode's articles have to do with pharmaceuticals, an area that is always changing and in which there is a ton to learn. Well, are you ready to dive in? Great. Let's start by hearing from Melissa Coyne, an assistant professor at Pennsylvania College of Optometry at South University in Elkins Park, Pennsylvania, as she reads the article she wrote with co-author Tracy Offerdahl, who is also an associate professor at Pennsylvania College of Optometry at Salus. These two tackle the topic of monoclonal antibodies, showing how knowing how they're dosed and about their potential side effects will serve you and your patients well. Whether you've noticed or not, pharmaceutical companies have been advertising high-tech, genetically engineered medication in the biologic category. Biologics are not a new discovery and include examples such as insulin, blood products, gene therapy, and vaccines. The newer generation of biologics offer an ever-increasing list of mechanisms of action and indications, including agents that treat cancer, autoimmune disease, type 2 diabetes, obesity, and wet age-related macular degeneration. What makes these agents unique compared with other traditional small molecule drugs is their large structures, human, animal, or microbial sourcing, their targeted mechanism of action, and high price tag. Ocular biologics, including monoclonal antibodies, are part of this newer group of biologics, and it is important for optometrists to have a working knowledge of these agents. I'll provide an overview of the monoclonal antibodies commonly encountered by optometrists, broken down by the disease state that they treat. In patients with thyroid eye disease secondary to Graves' disease, we typically see progressive enlargement of orbital fat and extraocular muscles. These signs and symptoms include eyelid retraction, exophthalmus, extraocular muscle restriction or dysfunction, diplopia, compressive optic neuropathy, and corneal exposure. Pathogenic autoantibodies, or thyroid-stimulating immunoglobulins, target the thyrotropin receptor and serve as the presumed underlying cause of thyroid eye disease. However, newer research suggests that insulin-like growth factor type 1 also plays a role in thyroid eye disease. Orbital fibroblasts express both the thyrotropin receptor and the insulin-like growth factor 1 receptor with overexpression of the latter in patients with thyroid eye disease. Orbital fibroblast differentiation can result in increased volumes of fat, muscle, and water content in the orbit of patients with thyroid eye disease, and these changes are associated with the clinical manifestations observed in thyroid eye disease. 
Keprotumumab is a human monoclonal antibody used in the treatment of thyroid eye disease. The drug is prescribed as an intravenous infusion every three weeks for eight doses. The most common side effects include muscle spasms, alopecia, transient hearing loss, and hyperglycemia. Teprotumumab's unique mechanism of action targets the insulin-like growth factor 1 receptor and blocks insulin-like growth factor 1 and insulin-like growth factor type 2 from binding that insulin-like growth factor 1 receptor. This results in several key improvements, including blocked autoantibodies, leading to a decreased effect on orbital fibroblasts, inhibition of the inflammatory cytokine cascade, and prevention of muscle and fat remodeling. Treatment outcomes include improvement in proptosis, diplopia, clinical activity scores, and Graves' orbitopathy quality of life score. Uveitis is classified based on the location of intraocular inflammation and or its underlying cause. Non-infectious uveitis may be primary or secondary to an underlying systemic condition, such as HLA-B27-associated conditions, sarcoidosis, Voigt-Kaniagi-Harada syndrome, and Bichette disease. Most importantly, non-infectious uveitis is formally diagnosed after infectious etiologies and malignant causes are ruled out. Topical ophthalmic corticosteroids and topical ophthalmic cycloplegic agents serve as baseline management of intraocular inflammation. However, prolonged corticosteroid therapy utilized in non-infectious uveitis can result in both ocular and systemic side effects. Refractory cases of non-infectious uveitis typically require advanced immunotherapy management to help control ocular inflammation. Immunotherapy, including monoclonal antibodies, is initiated when conventional therapy is ineffective in controlling non-infectious uveitis. Additionally, it is imperative to remember that non-infectious uveitis is oftentimes a manifestation of an underlying systemic condition that lacks specific or unidentified therapeutic targets. Infliximab and adalimumab are the most commonly prescribed biologics used in the treatment of non-infectious uveitis. Both biologics are anti-tumor necrosis factor alpha monoclonal antibodies. Tumor necrosis factor alpha is a major inflammatory cytokine released by immune and non-immune cells throughout the body and is known to be overexpressed in patients with certain types of autoimmune diseases. Infliximab and adalimumab inhibit the inflammatory cascade singling that is activated by tumor necrosis factor alpha. Infliximab is given as an intravenous infusion, beginning with a loading dose at weeks 0, 2, and 6, followed by maintenance doses typically given every 4 to 6 weeks based on the clinical response. Adalimumab is initially given as an 80 mg subcutaneous single injection, followed by a 40 mg subcutaneous dose every other week, beginning one week after the initial injection. Side effects include injection site reactions, increased susceptibility to infections, example, viral and bacterial infections, reactivation of latent tuberculosis, and secondary malignancies. Tocilizumab is another monoclonal antibody that has shown efficacy in the treatment of non-infectious uveitis. It binds interleukin-6 receptors, resulting in the blocking of pro-inflammatory actions of interleukin-6, which may be overexpressed in some patients with autoimmune diseases. 
Tocilizumab is prescribed as either an IV infusion at 4 milligrams per kilogram to 8 milligrams per kilogram every four weeks or as a 162 milligram subcutaneous injection every one to two weeks. Side effects associated with this drug include injection site reactions, increased susceptibility to infections, reactivation of latent tuberculosis, increased serum cholesterol, gastrointestinal side effects, and secondary malignancies. Advanced glycated end products are associated with chronic elevation of blood glucose levels that may disrupt the blood retina barrier, leading to retinal edema. The inflammatory cascade also contributes to accumulation of interstitial fluid within the macula, with inflammatory factors such as vaso or vascular endothelial growth factor, interleukins, and tumor necrosis factor present. Age-related macular degeneration is a multifactorial disorder with complex pathophysiology as a re result of dysregulation of many pathways, including the complement, lipid, and anti-inflammatory pathways. The presence of choroidal neovascularization characterizes wet age-related macular degeneration. Intravitreal, antivascular endothelial growth factor, is the mainstay of treatment in diabetic macular edema and neovascular age-related macular degeneration. There are several monoclonal antibody biologics available for the treatment of diabetic macular edema and wet age-related macular degeneration. Bevacizumab binds all isoforms of circulating vascular endothelial growth factor A, inhibiting the protein from binding the receptors on endothelial cells. Systemically, bevacizumab is an antineoplastic agent used in the treatment of certain types of cancer. When prescribed for patients with wet age-related macular degeneration, bevacizumab is given as a monthly 1.25 milligram intravitreal injection for three months, then monthly or as needed based on ophthalmologic status and examination. Dosing in patients with diabetic macular edema consists of an initial 1.25 milligram intravitreal injection, which is then repeated every four weeks, again, based on ophthalmologic status and examination. Ranibizumab also binds all forms of vascular endothelial growth factor A, but it has a higher affinity of about six times that of bevacizumab. When prescribed for patients with neovascular age-related macular degeneration, ranibizumab is dosed as a 0.5 milligram intravitreal injection once per month, although the frequency may be reduced after the first three or four injections to once every three months in some patients. Dosing in patients with diabetic macular edema or retinopathy consists of a monthly 0.3 milligram intravitreal injection. The newest intravitreal treatment to enter the market is furisumab, which duly targets vascular endothelial growth factor A and angiopoietin 2, and is designed to treat both diabetic macular edema and age-related macular degeneration. Angiopoietin 2 acts as a vascular destabilizing molecule. Inhibition of angiopoietin 2 decreases vascular permeability with dual inhibition of vascular endothelial growth factor A and angiopoietin 2. In patients with neovascular age-related macular de degeneration, furisumab is given as an initial 6 mg intravitreal injection once every 4 weeks for 4 doses. Subsequent doses of 6 milligrams are given as an 8, 12, or 16-week regimen and are based on the individual visual assessments.
In patients with diabetic macular edema, furosemab is initially given as an intravitreal injection of 6 mg once every 4 weeks for 6 doses. Subsequent doses of 6 mg are administered based on individual visual assessments every 4 to 16 weeks. Side effects include infectious endophthalmitis, intraocular inflammation, regimetogenous retinal detachment, elevation of the intraocular pressure, anterior ischemic optic neuropathy, retinal vein occlusions, and sixth nerve palsy. The treatment options for the management of ocular diseases and conditions has significantly expanded in the past couple of decades. With the expanded scope of practice in many states, the contemporary optometric physician is well suited to be part of the team treating patients with significant ocular issues. Keeping up to date on monoclonal antibody biologic agents is a good start towards knowing what is available and how to dose and monitor patients within the interprofessional treatment realm. Feeling more knowledgeable about monoclonal antibodies? These pharmaceutical agents are used to treat a variety of ocular diseases, so the more you know, the better off you'll be. What's next, you may be asking? Get ready to learn about the ocular effects of hormone replacement therapy from Cecilia Ketting, an optometrist at Hindsight in Denver, Colorado. Being aware of the potential harms and benefits associated with HRT can help you provide the best possible eye care to all patients, and Dr. Ketting offers a nice review, so settle on in for this one. Support for this podcast comes from Bryn Mawr Communications. BMC produces a number of informative podcast series spanning a variety of topics in optometry. Discover a new show at itube.net slash podcasts. As eye care physicians, we are well aware of how systemic medications and conditions can affect ocular health. Although hormone replacement therapy is becoming increasingly common, discussions about these treatments and their potential ocular effects have been minimal. HRT may be prescribed for patients for a multitude of reasons, including hormone imbalance, menopause, gender-affirming care, and prostate cancer. The Tear Film and Ocular Surface Society Dry Eye Workshop, or DUES report, has suggested that sex hormones play a part in multifactorial ocular surface disease. What effects does HRT have on the eyes? Are all the side effects negative? I'm going to address these questions in the discussion today. Androgen, which is uh, one of the hormones that may be used, plays a role in ocular surface health by supporting the development and function of the meibomian glands, the lacrimal glands, the cornea, and the conjunctiva. Deficiency in androgen can lead to poor corneal wound healing, damage the conjunctival and corneal cells, as well as increased signs of dry eye disease and lumbal stem cell dysfunction. This may result in worsening of a patient's dry eye symptoms or even neurotrophic keratitis. Androgen also has a pilosebaceous effect. That means that it helps to maintain the proper function of the sebaceous glands and hair follicles, and issues with that uh, results in a balance of moisture in the eyes and skin. The lacrimal gland is an androgen target. Therefore, dysregulation of androgen can lead to gland dysfunctions and aqueous tear deficiency. At the same time, meibomian glands utilize androgen to help suppress keratinization and stimulate lipid and fatty acid production, which is integral to the functionality of meibomian glands. Decreased androgen is commonly found in patients with Sjogren's syndrome and also occurs during menopause, pregnancy, and lactation. 
patients taking estrogen-containing oral contraceptives and those on feminizing HRT may also experience a reduction in androgen production. Estrogen and progesterone are important hormones as well. These hormones are found in human tears with receptors in the bimboian glands, lacrimal glands, cornea, and conjunctiva. Patients on estrogen and or anti-androgen therapy may experience an improvement in acne in part because of the blocking of the androgens, which is also responsible for sebum and lipid production. This is also shown to lead to improvements in meibomian gland dysfunction and ocular rosacea. On the flip side, both estrogen and androgen influence the production of all components of the tear film. Therefore, a reduction or imbalance of these hormones would lead to worsening dry eye disease. This change in hormone balance is the underlying reason why peri- and postmenopausal women have a higher incidence of dry eye disease. Ongoing studies have shown improved signs and symptoms of menopause-associated dry eye disease in patients on hormone replacement therapy. Research suggests that estrogen has also had a neuroprotective effect on the retina and optic nerve. Yet another study investigated the potential beneficial effects of estrogen on vasodilation, which reduces vascular resistance and increases the blood flow within the central retinal artery and ophthalmic artery. This was in stark contrast to both androgen and progesterone, which were found to reduce retinal blood flow. It is common for patients with breast cancer who are on anti-estrogen therapy, such as tamoxifen, to experience ocular side effects, including severe chronic evaporative dry eye disease. These patients should be monitored for tamoxifen toxicity within the retina and cornea, as well as worsening dry eye disease. For patients experiencing worsening dry eye disease, the eye care physician should treat the side effects rather than stop the potential life-saving medication, as we would in the scenario of potential retinal toxicity. In the discussion of testosterone, Testosterone and dihydrotestosterone bind to androgen receptors on the sebaceous cells, causing an increase in gland size and in sebum production, which stimulates increased keratinization and formation of microcomedones. These changes can lead to an increase in acne development in ocular rosacea. Guidelines suggest that patients receiving testosterone should be evaluated every three months for adverse effects. Worsening meibomian gland dysfunction, dry eye disease symptoms, and demodex blepharitis are all potential side effects of hormone replacement therapy with testosterone. In discussion of gender-affirming care, it is important to understand that our gender non-conforming patients may be experiencing and to treat their ocular or visual side effects caused by HRT, regardless of our personal individual beliefs or feelings. Patients are undergoing these therapies may be doing so to reduce gender dysphoria and accompanying psychological and emotional distress. These patients often have already undergone significant evaluation and psychological assessment and may already be anxious about seeking care. It is up to us as their provider to make them feel safe. Patients undergoing feminizing HRT typically are prescribed spironolactone to block male sex hormone receptors and suppress testosterone production. Estrogen is typically added to this regimen after four to eight weeks. Progesterone may be also added to help with mood, libido, and breast development. Patients undergoing masculinizing HRT are usually prescribed only testosterone. Neither oral methotestosterone nor androgen are typically used because of the side effects, 
but rather progesterone-only birth control until amenorrhea is achieved as testosterone levels increase. Younger patients may be on medication for puberty hormone suppression or known as puberty blockers. These will most likely be gonatropine, releasing hormone analogs, which help to decrease the development of both primary and secondary sex characteristics. Remember, part of taking care of our patients is knowing who they are and what they're going through. Ask our patients their preferred pronouns and chosen name. This is a very easy way to make the patient feel you are there for them. The side effects of the HRT are manageable, and some are even potentially beneficial to ocular health. Always make sure to really look at what medications your patients are taking so that you can be better prepared to understand their needs and their situations that they're currently going through. How many patients in your practices are on hormone replacement therapy? Given the possible ocular side effects associated with these medications, it's extra important to make sure you get an accurate and up-to-date medical history from all patients. That's a wrap for this month. Thanks to Drs. Coyne and Ketting for reading their articles for the Mod Pod. And thanks to our listeners for subscribing, liking, sharing, and of course for listening to our show. If you have a comment, feedback, or want to hear us cover something specific on a future episode, drop us a line at kroman at bmctoday.com. Until next time, be well.